Hello, and thank you for listening to this show called The Green Majority from CIUT in Toronto. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. How you doing? Stefan is going to interview today Emma McIntosh of the National Observer about a story she broke recently regarding Doug Ford's donors benefiting from government project approvals that override environmental protections. Before I get into this just utter deluge of news that I have prepared, what I'm personally thinking about uh, this week is why anyone has given me a microphone, (laughs) why I'm even the guy, why I'm the guy talking. I don't know why I'm the guy talking, but I'm the guy who's talking, and here we are. So, Stefan, what about you? I'm still actually thinking about part of the interview from last week with Stay Grounded, where we talked a little bit about the concept of slower travel and the ways in which we would have to decelerate our lives to allow for less carbon-intensive travel. You know, the idea that we could actually live better lives by consuming less, by giving ourselves, say, a four-day work week or more vacation time to be able to travel more slowly so it, you know you don't have to fly f- to Europe for the three days you get on vacation. You know, all these ways in which slower living could provide both mental health and in, in life benefits, but also environmental benefits. Justin Trudeau met with Joe Biden on the 23rd to bro out about leadership stuff, allegedly summoning the fuzzy yet shiny conviviality that only a couple of officially polished, warm-hearted men like themselves could possibly convey. They managed this even though the meeting was limited to a video call, meaning their moisturized skin could not touch. Just picturing leaders' skins sliding, sliding between one another. Okay. Justin told Joseph he was happy the U.S. was back in the Paris Agreement, and Joseph told Justin the U.S. was going to start pressuring other countries to increase their climate ambitions. Julia Levin recently wrote for Environmental Defense that she hopes Biden's order to end fossil fuel subsidies will influence Canada to do the same. She notes that Canada promised to end quote-unquote inefficient fossil fuel subsidies 10 years ago, but has so far done nothing, and Canadian provinces have been collecting less money in fossil fuel royalties as the years have gone by, meaning that private companies are making more money extracting natural resources, but giving less back to the public. Joe Biden is planning to reevaluate such fossil fuel royalties in the United States. Speaking of Canada-U.S. relations, a group called Interfaith Power and Light has mounted a petition to get Biden to cancel the Canadian Enbridge Line 3 replacement pipeline that is being constructed through northern Minnesota. These are spiritual leaders coming together with indigenous water protectors. The pipeline includes hundreds of water crossings, and two of these are at the headwaters of the Mississippi River. One point that pipeline opponents make is that there has yet been no federal environmental impact statement done for the project. A water protector named Tanya Obid began a hunger strike on Valentine's Day in protest. During the original public consultation process, 4,000 public comments from Minnesotans supported the pipeline, while 68,000 opposed it. Wild rice is one of the natural bounties being protected by pipeline protesters. They are also protecting the water. Ojibwe attorney Tara Huska recently stated at a water protector camp, quote, We're taught that we must extract to live, rather than to live in balance and to live in a way that respects all life. You can join the hashtag DefundLine3 campaign, if you want to, online. Deb Holland, 
who is, as of this recording, being considered for U.S. Interior Secretary, recently said in hearings that nature is here to provide for us, that fossil fuels will be necessary for years to come, and mines should continue to be developed in the United States. She supported and attended the Standing Rock protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016, and wants to transition the U.S. towards clean energy. Some Standing Rock water protectors are still being hounded by the U.S. government, obviously years after the fact. A man named Stephen Martinez, for instance, was recently jailed for refusing to testify in a case in which the police are trying to prove that it was not they who injured another water protector by the name of Sophia Wilonsky. The ways in which the U.S. state has pursued the water protectors at Standing Rock, I think, remains one of the more underappreciated atrocities that sort of carried on in the background while Trump sucked up all of the oxygen on the, on the planet. You know, they were tried by juries that were anything but their peers. They were set up in numerous ways by government agents who, in some cases, were the very people who brought weapons into the camp, and they were threatened with incredibly harsh penalties in ways of scaring them into plea bargains instead of actually having it fought out in court. And depressingly, many states are gearing up to be able to double or triple down in future conflicts, including Minnesota, which is where the the fight against Line 3 is currently focused. This is because of legislation that has already been passed in 14 states and is being considered in Minnesota, Arkansas, Montana, and Kansas. The legislation designates oil, gas, coal, or plastic facilities as, quote, critical infrastructure and adds new and incredibly onerous penalties for vague charges like trespassing or tampering. You know, for example, the bill would allow virtually anyone who is a part of a protest where even minimal damage is done to equipment that's on site to be charged as liable for the damage, and they can be fined up as, to as much as $20,000 and receive up to 10 years in prison. Pulling uh, from reporting done by Mother Jones on the subject, these bills are being pushed by the right-wing and billionaire and oil industry-funded organization American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC for short, which began drawing up these bill, their draft legislation that these have, bills have been based on after Dakota Access, and in many ways in response to Dakota Access. And what's key, key here is that normally this concept of critical infrastructure is saved for things like nuclear reactors or dams. But this bill could mean that even something like blocking a roadway could come with significant charges. And there's there's so much more to the story that I recommend folks check out the Mother Jones article on it. It's from Alexander Kaufman and came out uh, a few weeks uh, came out recently. But suffice to say, as pipelines lose their social license, their only response appears to be trying to crush resistance further and further with the powers of the state. The only response from us, I think, has to be to stand up and refuse, you know, to be cowed. Our Ontario Premier, Mr. Doug Ford, is waiting for Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to return his call. He wants to convince Whitmer to stop trying to shut down Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline, which is almost 70 years old and runs through Lake Michigan. Whitmer said in November that the state would shut down Line 5 by May because Enbridge is not reporting its risks properly, and the pipeline could break and devastate the Great Lake. Enbridge said in January that it would refuse to comply, and appealed to a U.S. federal court, saying that Michigan did not have the authority to force them to shut the pipeline down. Michigan Radio quotes the organization Oil and Water Don't Mix as stating, quote, Enbridge's desperate attempt to weaponize the United States federal courts and bludgeon Michigan with an army of corporate lawyers is a delay tactic that will ultimately fail. Michigan Radio also quotes Mike Schreiberg of the National Wildlife Federation as saying, quote, 
This is a desperate move by Enbridge to keep its dangerous pipeline posing an unacceptable risk to the Great Lakes and the communities, jobs, drinking water, and wildlife dependent on them. Enbridge knows it has a weak case because it relies on trying to take away Michigan's ability to protect its own waters. Here we have an example of how in North America, corporations often have more resources and are often more powerful than the governments that are supposed to be for the people. At least, Enbridge is certainly attempting to simply tell Michigan what it's going to do with its waters. This Line 5 pipeline is a dual pipeline, carrying oil as well as natural gas. It is connected to the Enbridge main line, which supplies oil sands crude to Chemical Valley in Sarnia, Ontario, where the crude is turned into gasoline, propane, diesel, jet fuel, and other fossil fuel products. The pipeline supplies 53% of all crude oil used or processed in Ontario, and around two-thirds of the crude oil used in Quebec. The Ontario Federation of Agriculture argues that Ontario farmers will find it harder to keep their cattle warm, heat their greenhouses, or dry their crops if this fuel is no longer available. Others worry about the thousands of jobs in Chemical Valley. This is why Doug Ford says that his is the party of the working class, even though he does not favor any collective measures to help working people, like raising the minimum wage, providing universal paid sick days, or even acknowledging the great many temporary farm workers from other countries who harvest Ontario crops in terrible conditions for very low pay. He supports a very specific cohort of laborers, well-paid, technically skilled workers who are still mostly white men. In any case, uh, going back to the point about farming, Doug Ford's destruction of environmental protections and clean energy production in Ontario does not bode well for the maintenance of the land needed to grow crops in this province in the first place. There will be no farmland left if we keep paving over everything, and we will not have a stable climate in which to grow food if we do not stop burning fossil fuels. I mention the paving because Doug Ford's government has recently decided to revive two highways that had been shown to be too destructive and costly to build. They are the 413 and the Holland Marsh Highway. The latter, of course, will go straight through the Holland Marsh. Relatedly, Enbridge is currently seeking a permit from Michigan to bore a tunnel under the lake bed to replace Line 3. A Michigan judge recently ruled that the Michigan Public Service Commission does not need to consider climate change or the need for new oil in general as it decides whether to allow Enbridge to construct the tunnel. If the current 70-year-old pipeline spills, not only will it devastate Lake Michigan, it will put at risk hundreds of thousands of jobs that rely on the lake. Governor Whitmer has said that Enbridge has not been reporting properly on anchors being dragged by ships that have hit the pipeline at least twice. In the interview with Emma McIntosh that comes up shortly, we discuss a little bit about Ford's pro-developer mindset that is eating away at Ontario farmland. And that doesn't even, and we don't really get to the the larger question or conversation uh, about Highway 413, which will definitely run through swaths of farmland and, would, and, and also would further open up even more space for sprawl that would invariably lead to decrease in our own ability to grow food. And at this point, I think we have to see any extension of suburban sprawl, especially that which endangers farmland, as climate denial. In regards to the pipeline, I think the discourse around Line 5 sort of highlights one of the fundamental failures in the grow-always mindset. Because in what world do we trust a 70-year-old pipeline or the company that runs it to be honest about the risks when time and time again we have let these companies off the hook when they've gone too far and allowed a massive spill? You know, why are the jobs of those destroying the air surrounding Chemical Valley more important than the jobs of those who rely on, on a healthy Lake Michigan? With pipelines, it is always a matter of when and not if they spill. And one that is old enough to have been drafted into the Vietnam War certainly does not strike me as one to trust. 
The UNEP recently put out a document called Making Peace with Nature, a scientific blueprint to tackle the climate, biodiversity, and pollution emergencies. Their key messages are that environmental crises are killing people and hurting societal progress around the globe. The 2020s are crucial for protecting today's children and the children of tomorrow. Countries need to align their environmental plans so that we don't sacrifice human beings to save the environment. Countries' whole economies need to move away from fossil fuel. And polycentric governance, deliberation and negotiation in which every country has a voice, is necessary to make it all work. The document reiterates the need to cut global carbon emissions by 45% by 2030, compared with 2010 levels. A study recently published in the journal Science is showing that half of all the world's river systems have been heavily affected by human activity, and that rivers around the world have begun to resemble one another, because species unique to certain systems have disappeared and non-native species have taken their place. A recent study in the journal Nature is showing that ocean fishing has increased 18-fold since 1970, causing a 71% decline in oceanic sharks and rays. And everyone knows that rays, scientifically known as batoids, are the most amazing superorder of cartilaginous fishes. Sharks and rays are tremendously important to ocean ecosystems, but three-quarters of them are now at risk of extinction. The scientists recommend strict prohibitions and precautionary science-based fishing limits. According to a new study published in the journal Science Direct, just sitting in a car for 20 minutes could very well expose you to cancerously dangerous levels of benzene and formaldehyde, as well as other chemicals floating in the air and dust inside a vehicle. The only thing I know about formaldehyde is that it's what we used to preserve fetal pigs for dissection in high school. The Environmental Investigation Agency recently found that 60% of Walmart stores and over half of other supermarkets investigated were leaking measurable levels of HFCs which is a greenhouse gas thousands of times worse than CO2. HFCs, or hydrofluorocarbons, came into use after CFCs were successfully banned in 1992 for putting a hole in the ozone. It has come to light that the five largest oil refiners in the U.S. emitted tons of benzene, carbon monoxide, hydrogen sulfide, and sulfur dioxide, in order to protect their equipment from the deep freeze that recently settled over Texas. It happened because their equipment was not winterized. They have therefore been allowed to cause planetary suffering in order to save money. Texas electricity facilities, renewable and fossil fuel alike, were also not winterized, even though it was suggested years ago that they should be. This along with their having a deregulated energy sector, allowed for natural gas companies to prey upon desperate and freezing Texans with unspeakably high energy prices, which many customers didn't even realize was possible. At least one natural gas company was heard bragging about the jackpot they had hit. Finally, a major Mediterranean oil spill with a mysterious origin has drowned small creatures in black sludge and littered Israel's beaches with tar. One volunteer suggested it will take decades to clean. The Israeli government either does not know or will not say where the spill came from. That last story of a mysterious oil spill coming out of the water is... That's dystopian-level mystery sludge. But... The good news, uh, but I'll get to some good news first, which is that the good news in regards to the HFCs, um, which is that we, as we covered in December, the American government passed 
the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act, which actually requires the EPA to phase down the production and import of HFCs by 85% over the next 15 years. It actually gives them a direct mandate to do so, which is very important. And, and, and we can now actually trust this administration's EPA to actually try to take that seriously. So at least for the next four years, we should see some action on that. But back to terrifying things, I find this river study very disconcerting. There's something about the fact that they have begun to resemble each other, which makes me feel some sort of looming sense of dread. You know, it's kind of the idea that we are terraforming the earth into something that is the same the whole world round, with obviously far less biodiversity. It, it just doesn't feel good. And finally, and very briefly on Texas, it's important to note for folks that what failed in Texas wasn't the grid itself. It was the power generation, largely natural gas. And the reason why Texans suffered in the ways they did was due to the fact that they have completely isolated themselves in terms of receiving power. If you look at uh, the connected power grids in the United States, the entire West Coast is connected. The entire East Coast is connected. And then there's just Texas. So, so sure of itself that it can stick it out on its own, it has no avenues to receive power from other places. So it was, so that is why it was beholden to the natural gas companies in the way that it was. You know, Lone Star State is truly alone, and they've allowed their populace to suffer because of it. What happened in Texas should be taught in schools that focus on how to make your communities more climate resilient. Because climate resilient communities are connected they are caring. They do not leave out. They do not leave you out in the cold, or else expect you to pay tens of thousands of dollars for the right to not freeze to death in your own home. We have to understand that these connections we have and the ways we are connected are is, the, are, is our only hope of survival in a climate changed world. Crushed Velvet by Jaunt. Thank you, Jaunt. And now returning to the Green Majority. We are so grateful to be joined by friend of the show, Emma McIntosh, to discuss her new story that came out, I believe, last week on the Ontario government, MZOs, and developer money. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Always great to have you. And so we've covered parts of the beginnings of the story over the last, I would say, almost year. 
But just to give our listeners a better chance to reorient themselves in their mind, can you tell us a quick overview of how we've gotten to the point you know, that your story sort of begins at? Yeah, so maybe the place to begin is really all the way back in 2018 when Doug Ford was trying to become premier. He was still not even an elected official in terms of provincial parliament, which is weird to think about. It's been an eon. But remember all this kerfuffle around Doug Ford wanting to open up the green belt for development? And he talked about, you know, some of the greatest developers in the province are really behind this idea. And then everyone got really, really mad and shouted him down, basically. And he, he took it back. And then that happened again one time and he took it back. And what we've seen in the years since is just kind of this slower watering down of uh, the rules that bind development. And, you know, it's happened, it's kind of like a, a spider, I guess, with many legs, right? He's watered down environmental species protections to make development easier. He's watered down the environmental assessment process. He's limited the powers of conservation authorities, which I know y'all know about. And then the big thing that started to change in the spring once COVID hit was they started using record numbers of this weird, very wonky mechanism called an MZO or a ministerial zoning order. Um, These used to be pretty rare and we'll tell you more about what they are, but they used to be used a handful of times per year maybe in like emergencies and and really uh, urgent situations. And COVID hits, and all of a sudden, the government starts issuing flurries of them, six in a day, four in a day, 10 in a week. And now we're at the point where there were essentially 33 in the last year. So um, it's kind of a new way to approach planning in Ontario and kind of unprecedented in the the scheme of things. Yeah. And obviously, these MZOs, ministerial zoning orders, are controversial, I would say certainly within those who are living near them, but perhaps we can just get a better sense of what they are exactly. So why were they not used so often previously and and what do they do? Yeah. So a ministerial zoning order basically allows the minister of municipal affairs, who is Steve Clark right now, to make a final, completely unappealable decision on how a parcel of land could be used. Um, And that matters because something can be zoned for agriculture, for example. And with this one directive that could be sent down from the minister's office, all of a sudden that land is zoned for industrial use and boom, a glass factory can go in there, for example. It kind of skips over the whole local planning process. Municipalities can like do all of that stuff before they request an MZO, but they don't have to. So it can skip all kinds of checks and balances. And it also can deny the public the right to have a say. Now, because of that you know, denial of public consultation potentially, these things are viewed as really undemocratic and it isn't written anywhere in the rules that you have to use it for something that's pretty uncontroversial, but that's how governments have always used them. The example would be the liberals, they used this like just over a dozen times in their, in their time in government, which was like over a decade. So that really shows that they were only using them a handful of times a year. Like they use them for the Pan Am games They use one to allow some helicopter landing stuff around hospitals in Toronto. They use one to give Elliott Lake a grocery store after its only store was destroyed when the, like the mall roof collapsed. So like really uncontroversial, like we just need something to happen fast kind of projects. Now that's not what's happening right now. A lot of them are for things that would be considered urgent, like long-term care homes or factories that would build medical supplies, but a lot of them aren't. Like a lot of them are just for residential housing or like there's a a racetrack and like luxury car club and lots of things that don't have much to do with COVID at all. So everything that you've said so far was in previous reporting that you've done. And, and this new reporting brings a, a bigger picture to it and brings in the conversation around money and campaign finance. And so what is the new information that you were sort of released last week? So the new information that I looked at last week, um, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. So first of all, I analyzed all 38 of the zoning orders issued by the Ford government since 2018 to identify the ones where there is an environmental concern. And I found 14. So over a third of them have an environmental concern involved. And then with those 14 environmentally concerning projects, I looked at who the developers were who were connected to them. Not every order has a developer connected to it. 
Some of them are for vacant provincial land that they're trying to sell and no one has bought it yet. But the ones that did, which was nine of them, the orders, it turns out, benefited developers who were donating to the party. And what I found was 112,000 in donations to the party and another 150,000 in donations to Ontario Proud. Can you give a quick question of, of why Ontario Proud is included in this? Oh, yeah. So Ontario Proud was a big player in the last election in 2018. They are this third party group that is uh, definitely conservative. You might remember them from like a lot of memes that were everywhere on Facebook around that time, very pro Doug Ford memes. And they very much supported Doug Ford in that election. And because they're a third party group, their donations are not as limited as the donations to parties. So they only had a budget of about 500,000, but they were pouring all of that into social media advertising. And so like they have been widely kind of credited with helping push the PCs to victory. It's also worth noting that if that budget is only like about 500,000, 150,000 in donations to it is not insignificant. That's almost like a third, right? So this is not nothing that we're talking about. This is an amount of money that was significant. So Let's try to put a, a little bit of a finer point on this with a, a specific example. Is there is there one case that you could use as a sort of example of, of sort of how this all went down? The delicious case study that everybody likes to talk about and that I like to talk about as well is Durham Live in Pickering. So Durham Live is this big uh, casino entertainment complex that is being built there. And one kind of offshoot of that project is this like warehouse film studio complex called Project Lone Star. And Project Lone Star is slated to be built on top of a protected wetland. Now, this wetland is classified as provincially significant, which is not something that you you get arbitrarily. That means that it's gone through a rigorous examination. I went through the manual that they use for this stuff. It's like hundreds of pages. And you you basically have to find that this is really rich in like wildlife, that it's really got a lot of biodiversity and that it's supporting ecological functions like flood control and water quality filtering. So normally developing on this would not be allowed, but the government issued an MZO and suddenly project is approved. It still had to go through one more stage. And the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority had said that it was not going to give a permit, which would effectively stop the project. And right after that, the government actually changed the law so that conservation authorities couldn't say no in that situation. And now it's going ahead. So a lot of folks have been protesting that. And the developers behind the project are the Apostolopoulos family who are billionaires and run a company called Triple Group. Now, Triple Group didn't respond to my investigation, but they have previously said that they don't believe that the donations that they made to the progressive conservatives are significant. They, they did make thousands of donations over the last couple of years, um, the patriarch Andreas and his sons, but they also donated to the local mayors as well. And the mayor of neighboring Ajax, who is very against the project, has accused his uh, fellow mayor in Pickering of being swayed by the money. That mayor is also denied being swayed by the money. And Steve Clark's office says that he's not being swayed by the money. It's not a factor. I think like the appearance of it raises some questions. And the fact that this is one case study, there are eight others where this has happened is, is kind of, you know, raises eyebrows. For sure. And especially in the case that, so there's, this is eight of 33 total and of only 14 that have sort of you know, more environmental impact is a pretty high percentage of these cases that you've found where there was an environmental impact. The developers have donated money to the Doug Ford government. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the analysis included stuff that's not just from this year. So it, right. it included like all 38 of the total ones. Yeah. And like, the, the other part about it for me is that other element you mentioned, which is that like, it wasn't just that they wanted to support the, that they passed the MZO, which obviously is sort of an ending everything, but then they changed rules to stop the only other governing body that could do this. And to me, that combo sort of is like, okay, you really wanted this thing to go through, which then you have to ask, why does the Ontario government care so much about this particular project? It doesn't strike me as something that is like 
super urgent. You know, there's so many other things you can imagine, like the Elliott Lake example to me is one of these things where it's like, yeah, do whatever you need. This community has suffered a tragedy. It needs something built quickly. That makes perfect sense to me. But the, the level of effort that the conservatives are going to get this thing passed, it really draws the question. You, you're left with the question, why? And absent of a good argument from their side, like, I guess it's an interesting question and, and maybe there's no answer, but has the provincial government stated why these particular cases for some reason were worthy of an MZO? So the reason that they point to with these more controversial cases where there's no like affordable housing involved or no long-term care, again and again, they say, well, you know, the economy is really struggling because of COVID-19 and projects like this are boosting our recovery. There are some questions around that. Um, when you think about the economic cost of flooding, which, you know, is increasing and likely to get worse if we lose wetlands that offer natural flood control, like those costs aren't nothing. I don't know what the cost benefit analysis there would be, but I know that the government hasn't answered when I asked them about it. And even beyond that, like, I think there's a real issue with the, like, the setup of that binary. It's not about jobs versus environment. Those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. With Durham Live, for example, the mayor of Ajax is pretty steadfast in saying there is a ton of land that could have been used for this. It didn't have to be built on top of a wetland. And it does raise questions, right? Like they haven't heard an explanation for why this particular project was viewed as so important. And I think absent that, that's that's where these concerns start to prop up, right? Or uh, crop up. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually, I think, you know, it might have been kind of a miscalculation on their part. If you look at the writings where this is happening, it's all around the GTA. It's pretty much all like 905 writings, really vote rich areas around Toronto in the suburbs where the progressive conservatives and pretty much anyone who wants to have a foothold in Ontario politics, they need to win there if they are gonna win the election. These are the people who propelled him to victory. And he's really starting to make them mad. Like the mayor of Ajax for, is, is one another example. Clearly I talked to this guy for a long time, um, but he, he told me that he, was a conservative supporter, that this was his government, and he does not understand why they would do this. People have been out there protesting every week since like November. Like the level of opposition is maybe more than the government anticipated. It's not just there either. There was a case in London where an MZO allowed a glass factory to be built. Um, the residents were furious and they protested and made a lot of noise about it. And the company actually backed off last week. The mayor of Stratford has still, like since said that he actually regrets asking for the MZO in the first place. So the awareness of these things is growing and the backlashes as well. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll come back to this as this as this continues, especially if we continue to see more, more MZOs. Uh, always wonderful to have you on, Emma. Any last points that you think are important for people to know about the story? Yeah, if I could know one more thing, I think it would be that a lot of these MZOs were used to approve projects that went in on farmland. And I know that that doesn't really sound like a big deal when I first mention it, but think about it. Like farm fields are a carbon sink. They limit the extent of urban sprawl, which limits carbon emissions that can come from that sprawl. And they're also like important corridors for wildlife. So when we're using up farmland like that at a really rapid pace, when we've already lost so much of our prime agricultural land, that's an issue for the climate. That's an issue for future food security. And people might not see that when it's like a one-off, you know, like we're losing one field here, one field there. But I think that that's a really important one. And I think that's probably like even beyond wetlands, which attracts a lot of attention. I think that's the one that people need to keep their eye on. For sure, especially, you know, in this time of COVID when local food production has really begun to be seen as even more important. Well, even... exactly. Well, thank you so much, Emma McIntosh from The National Observer. Thank you so much for all of your work and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener supported. So if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. 
Peace. As a year-long investigation from Global News and APTN is showing the way that our genocidal colonial governance systems have left so many First Nations without clean drinking water. The Tatasquayak Cree Nation in northern Manitoba is appealing to the United Nations to put pressure on Canada to finally ensure that they have clean water. Even though Inuit land guardians have left their protest site at the Baffinland mine in Nunavut, a court injunction might be extended to prevent them from ever returning. The Mary River mine expansion has been under review since 2014, and final environmental hearings are supposed to happen in March. And two First Nations in Nova Scotia now, Sibiganagadik and Botletek, are suing the provincial government for not allowing them to sell their catch under their guarantee to moderate livelihood fisheries. The Canadian Supreme Court ruled in 1999 that Mi'kmaq nations were allowed to catch seafood outside of the official season, but no Canadian laws were ever clarified to make way for this ruling. First Nations in Nova Scotia are now no longer waiting for the government and are simply starting to exercise this right, but Canadian laws are still preventing them from actually selling the catch. We covered in depth on this show back in the fall the way that Mi'kmaq people in Nova Scotia were being assaulted by non-native fishers for finally setting up their off-season fisheries. It has recently come to light that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the police knew of the violent threats against Mi'kmaq in advance, but did not come to their aid. Mi'kmaq fishers were intimidated on the water, attacked and harassed and stolen from, and a boat, a van, and two facilities were burned. A man has recently been charged for firing a gun at a Mi'kmaq fisher several months ago. There is absolutely no excuse for the Canadian federal government to continue to allow these systems to perpetuate. The lack of clean drinking water is one that can be simply solved with investment. And it is investment that the Canadian government continues to decide to place elsewhere. As an example, just recently it was revealed that the government continues to find money for the $1 billion, yes, billion, with a B, Coast Guard vessel. This is one ship. To put that in perspective, that means this one ship will have cost over half of what the government has spent for First Nations water and wastewater infrastructure on reserves over the past four years. You know, th this is decisions that are being made. The, the money exists. It's just a, a simple question of whether the federal government cares enough to do something about it. And they've invested, you know, $1.8 billion. There was another announcement today uh, that was more that was more money in, in, to, in other ways. But... This has been a problem for decades, and government after government has simply just not invested the amount of money to do this. It's unconscionable, and we as Canadian citizens should refuse to accept it. And now for our promised Mad Posse Vibes section. Uh, hashtag Mad Posse Vibes. The sky's falling, the wind is calling, stand for something or die in the morning. The Kingdom of Bhutan, which is the world's only carbon-negative country, has also had only one death from COVID-19. Their constitution mandates that 60% of their land be covered in forest, and according to Kate Yoder from Grist, quote, when Bhutan issued a mandatory quarantine in March for anyone who might have been exposed to the virus, it provided free room and board in hotels. It also delivered food and care packages and offered counseling for those in quarantine. An ongoing relief fund launched by the king has given $19 million to some 34,000 Bhutanese struggling to make ends meet. Lombok Island in Indonesia has also seen a correlation between its climate action and ability to fight COVID-19. 
the island had already established groups to help communities adapt to climate change, and these groups were then easily mobilized to help, the, uh, to help stem the spread of COVID-19. Perhaps the conservation core being proposed by Joe Biden could become a similar kind of community response group trusted by people in times of crisis. Also in Indonesia, runaway deforestation from palm oil plantations has been successfully curtailed. A decade-long trend of forest loss in Indonesia dropped majorly and has stayed low for several years now. Nathaniel Johnson paints it as a story of business, nonprofits, and activists working together. Singapore-based Wilmar International, the biggest buyer of Indonesian palm oil, noticed Singapore was choking in the smoke of burning forests and decided to no longer buy palm oil from suppliers that were burning down more forests. Other buyers followed suit, but it wasn't until activist groups started monitoring the forests from satellites and watchdogs were able to alert big palm oil buyers to the destruction that suppliers stopped destroying the forests. Engineers have developed a way to store energy in the small hills of Britain. These hills could be turned into natural batteries by using the intermittent energy of wind and solar, for instance, to move water to the top of a hill. When the energy is needed, the water is then released to flow down the hill, operating a turbine and producing the electricity again. Also in the UK, experts have identified a wonderful plant that is 20% better at absorbing dense roadside car pollution than other shrubs. The lead researcher said of the plant, which is called a cotton easter, Quote, we know that in just seven days, a one-meter length of well-managed dense hedge will mop up the same amount of pollution that a car emits over a 500-mile drive. Sweden has decided to revitalize city streets by turning parking spots into pedestrian areas with picnic tables, benches, bike racks, and e-scooter parking. A court in France ruled last month that a Bangladeshi man with asthma could not be deported because the air pollution in Bangladesh would be bad for his health. Also in France last month, the government began requiring companies to rank how easy their electronics are to repair. Manufacturers of laptops and smartphones will have to give their products a repairability score out of 10, helping people understand how long the thing might last. I'm glad that we get to end on on good news this week. And that palm oil news is huge. I remember covering some of those stories on the show uh, previously, and the sheer destruction and carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions that the industry was causing was beyond the scale that I think we are normally able to really comprehend. And it's also a great show of the combined power of consumers and nonprofit groups finding the right leverage points and pushing. As we'll hear next week in our interview with Amelia Meister of Some of Us, there are ways to harness our collective power and push companies to be better, but it often has to do with finding the places where they will listen. And also, for folks who want to nerd out with me, please send me all of your favorite versions of natural batteries. As, as Dave mentioned, the UK is using its hills and gravity, but here in Toronto in 2015, we began a pilot project to store energy by pushing air into a giant balloon, filling a giant balloon that is in our harbor. And these natural batteries are incredibly important when it comes to grid-level storage of energy, because it means that you don't have to rely exclusively on chemical batteries, which degrade more quickly and also require significantly more complicated inputs. And it means, when you have enough of them, that you don't have to rely on spinning generators as backup electricity in case one of your other generators goes down, which is incredibly important because those are so often natural gas or fossil fuels, because if you need something to be able to turn on and turn off quickly, the easiest that to do that with is, is, is fossil fuel generators. In fact, 
for anyone who was listening earlier last year, when we went on an extended rant about the failings of the Michael Moore documentary, one of the most obvious complaints was that it basically stated the only way to have backup power for renewables was fossil fuels and natural gas. And these types of batteries are exactly the kind of thing that put the lie to that belief. And finally, uh, an ask to all of us to embrace the right to repair, which I want to do a much longer piece on soon. So if you have any repair stories, please send them our way. And a salute to Sweden for realizing that they are f people are far, ha far, far happier when you undo the trend of the past half century and break up the parking lot to build paradise. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. Thank you.